Interior. Night. Recording studio. Two redheads begin pre-show warm-ups. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Jack, write that you gargle your water or something. Jack gargles some water. And then put that we say, welcome to Script Shop. Who? Me or you? Mm-hmm. You say it. Welcome to Script Shop. N- no, but like, really, say it. Like, right now. Like, right now. Let's go for it. Welcome to Scrimshaw. No, Jack. Top. <laughs> Omaha. No, Jack. Welcome to Script Shop. You're dead, you're dead, and out of this world. Hi, everybody. This is Jack with Script Shop. This is Allison. Is that a real song? Yeah, it is. So this is the uh, this this figures into our interview for this week's show. Hi, everybody. This is our podcast where we talk to screenwriters. Script Shop. We, that, yeah. <laughs> Man, <laughs> your voice is feeling better, but there's still you still got some uh, of that crud the in there. Cold's I can still hear it. in there. My attitude is just better. That's the thing. If you, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. Attitude better, voice health. Well, you know, attitude is everything, as they say. Sure, sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is our podcast where we talk to screenwriters and why they wrote them and what it means to them and why they're the only person in the whole world that could have written this screenplay. And it's a, it's a ton of fun to do. It really gives us an opportunity to get into, you know, the motivations behind it and who they are as who, people. what, where, when, why, and how. All those things. Of the writer and of the story. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should do, like, really, like, really dramatic. In a world. Yes. With this little raspy voice, I can be like... Dramatic readings, lycanthrope, the 11-page wear story that's reminiscent and potentially indicative of a long-form <laughs> ace. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's Allison Descartes' uh, script, which is lycanthrope. lycanthrope by uh, Roger Sampson. By Roger Sampson, who is uh, going to be talking with us about his script. Yeah, it's uh, if you're not familiar with the term lycanthropy, that is the medical condition that uh, would be a way to describe someone who is a werewolf. Did you look that up or do you just know that? No, I just know that. i'm a huge huge dork and i just know that i wish we had a button that was a dork alert yes and it would make a fun what noise would it be i don't know but it would never stop going off from the minute the show starts when i start talking to the minute the show ends oh man it's just nonstop dork i mean it is a screenplay podcast so we're geeking out on it together what more you know it's not like we're doing a sports thing or whatever no it's not like that yeah. Uh, we are doing some things on the internet, though, in addition to listening to us on scriptshopshow.com, which you may well be doing, or on some of the various ways that we try to distribute the show through Apple Podcasts or Google Play or whatever. We're Stitcher also- and SoundCloud. Stitcher, SoundCloud, all those things. We're also on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter, Script Shop Show. Uh, you can find us, you can friend us, you can follow us, and we would love that very much. For the record, when Jack says that, yeah. he does his hands like... I did like a little... Swoopy... Arms crooked, ninety degree, mm-hmm. our elbows swinging back and forth like I'm putting on a show. Friend us, friend us, follow us, la la la. That's gonna be the closing number. I love as it. In script shop, it's the a musical. new song that we get to put in that I can sing. What if script shop the musical is me singing badly, and all the actors have to do it too? That would we be have to so sing good. just as badly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's well, part of the like, job. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. It's important to be consistent and set a tone throughout <laughs> ah. the show. Oh man! Uh, well, we, well, we should hold well, on. We we don't have we Frank here with us. We talk about and Rooney's. We do need to talk about Rooney's and Rooney's. And the, the reason this is so maybe disjointed and chaotic is because unfortunately, once again, we are Frankless, and Frank does such a good job of keeping us on track for what we need to say yes. for the intro for the show. Yes. So Roger Sampson is listening right now. Apologies, Roger. We're we're muddling our way through this as best we can. We are on Patreon, which is a website that you can use to give money to various artistic projects that you like and Patreon. support. Patreon. 
dot com. It's a dot com, which makes it different than most websites. There's not a dot org no, there. No, it's a dot or com. A dot net dot. If you were curious about this thing called the internet, oh boy, you would just type in Patreon uh-huh. dot com. <laughs> this is very dramatic. Anyway, Patreon not. It keeps going to do my dramatic. We want you to give it to us now. <laughs> Patreon.com. If you would be interested in perhaps supporting the show in a financial way, that's an incredible thing. And we are greatly uh, thankful for all of the uh, supporters that we do have. Yes, You're all very thank special. You. We thank you very much. We thank you very much for your work. <laughs> so now the reason that I was singing that little song was hmm. so there, it, it's this it's the song that they use as the opening theme music for yes. What We Do in the Shadows, the TV show, which is based on What We Do in the Shadows, the movie, which is one of my all-time favorite comedies. It's a it's a fake documentary about vampires oh my gosh yes and their roommates taika watiti and jermaine clement and i can't think of a third guy because nobody can ever think of we've talked about this before haven't we i love the movie very very much and there's a part in the movie where at one point they're walking around and i actually found the little bits of dialogue i could smell werewolves and then the guy turns the camera goes okay we're just about to walk past some werewolves so some shit might go down (laughs) and then as they're walking past look out guys don't catch fleas and it turns into this weird like almost like jets and sharks kind of standoff between the werewolves and the vampires and at one point the werewolf says a curse word and they're like no come on man we're werewolves not swear wolves and it's just oh my gosh it's so silly and it's so funny and the show has been real i've been catching up on the show and it's finally sort of picked up in the beginning of the in the first season and it's good and i'm always happy to make any sort of reference to things that I like and the fact that we're talking to a writer who wrote a script about werewolves and that was that was my sort of intro to, to the show today. Yeah. Where, what does that stream off of? Uh, well, I watch it on Hulu, but it's, it's, okay. an, F, it's an FX show. What we do in show. the shadows. What we do in the shadows. I need to catch up on this. Other people in my real life have brought it up and I think it sounds hysterical. It's, the, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. Well. And the show has been very good. It's, it's picked up as it's sort of gone along. You know what I'm going to do? Yes. I'm going to do a Twitter thing. Oh. I'm going to watch it, and I'm going to tweet about it. You should do that. I'm going to do a Twitter thing. That's Well, listen, that's that's maybe one of the least offensive Twitter things one can do, so good on you. Oh, yeah, look at me go. <laughs> could be a lot worse. There we go, putting it out into the universe. We should probably check in with Roger. Let's do it. Who's waiting. Hi, Roger Sampson, are you there? Yes, I'm here. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? We're great. Are you familiar with the show, What We Do in the Shadows, the TV show or the movie? I have not, but I think I'm going to check it out. Oh man! So they were, there's there's been also talk for a long time about a sequel to the movie called What We Do in the Moonlight, which would be just about the group of werewolves that make a they're in sort of one scene in the movie. I could not the movie more highly, and the show has gotten better as as I've kept watching it. Very cool. Where are you calling us from today, Roger? I'm in Euless, uh, Texas. Oh yes, Ooh, Texas guy. Uh, that's right. I remember this, and also FYI, Roger. I'm a Texan myself, yeah. although I'm currently in Ohio. Nice. I, re- I regret every bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, except for everything that got us to this point. Yeah, I sure. know, I know. Such is life, right? But here I am. And uh, I do love Texas. I love Texans. Um, Are you a uh, Texas born and raised? I'm not, actually. I'm an import. Okay. I actually was, uh, I grew up in the Midwest. I was born in Kansas. I've been pretty much all over the place. Really? What, what's taking yeah. you around? Uh, well, I was born in Kansas. I spent the majority of my youth in Minnesota. Then I spent time in Texas, Arizona, and California, Man. among other places. Was Do you this- have a military family? Uh, I did, actually. Um, though, matter of fact, a, a certain portion of my youth was at, is, was in Colorado Springs, where my grandfather was an officer at the Air Force Academy. Oh, oh yeah. I, I, back when I was in school, we, we took a field trip out there and saw the cathedral. In- it is. It's huge. 
It is huge. I dated a guy at the Air Force Academy. Oh. That's my story of the Air Force it's, Academy. It, I've been there myself. It's good that we all have connections to Colorado. <laughs> That's very nice. So what brought you finally into Texas to maybe sort of settle down? Yeah, I needed to needed to settle down. I spent about 10 years in Los Angeles, and uh, I wanted to make films there, but it was really expensive. And um, we, you know, we... I like I lost a job that I had in uh, in Los Angeles, and it was just kind of a thing where we had to make move just to control our moving or to our living expenses. Mm-hmm. And so we just decided to start filmmaking in Texas instead, and that's where I've been for the last seven years. Okay, I got so many questions. <laughs> um, I'm just gonna rattle a couple of them off. Let's see what we get. You said we. I need to know who this we is. Uh, my late wife. Yeah. She, yes. She passed away this summer. Wow. Okay. okay. Um, okay. So. Uh, you two, and you moved from Los Angeles to Euless, Texas. Why Euless, Texas? Of yeah. course. Uh, well, actually, sort of bridging into my day job, I'm I'm a notary. I'm a traveling notary, and so uh, I wanted some place in the DFW metroplex that was relatively centrally located, so that I could cover basically all four corners of the yes. metroplex. Okay. And the DFW airport basically splits everything right down the middle, so I live at the south side of the DFW airport. Okay. Cool. What's it like being a traveling notary? Are you like, are people like pitching you on, hey, come out to sign off on my thing just all the time? No, actually, what happens is I work through a Fidelity National Financial Signing Service. And so uh, they send me, you know, when, when people need to sign real estate documents, they send me requests. And I'm, I have like a, I can take it or not take it as I want. So I can pretty much work as much as I want or as little as I want. And then, um, you know, I just go to people's houses, people's businesses, and uh, just, you know, take care of the real estate closings. Were you doing this in Los Angeles as well? I was actually, but uh, I didn't start out that way. My first day job was working as the executive assistant of a, of a guy who owned a signing service. And before that, I didn't even know that existed. And then I was talking to uh, his in-house notary one day about what he did. I'm like, that doesn't sound like it's that hard. He says, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he, his job was easier than mine. He got paid twice as much. So I'm like, I'm in the wrong business. So, so but I so, switched that. I mean, you're talking about you can work as often as you want and the money's decent on it. Like, it, it's sort of like one of these, like, gig economy type jobs, right? Where somebody, like, says, hey, you know, they're putting out the request. Hey, we'd like somebody to come help us sign off our stuff. And you can just sort of pick to go with it or not. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a 1099 kind of a situation, but you know, I just, you know, you budget for your taxes and you, you know, the, the beautiful part about notary public income is that on federal income tax, you're exempt from self-employment tax. So that's makes it really a nice pet to have. That, you know, this is not the notary tax podcast. It is now. But I'm really excited about learning all of this. Yeah, no kidding. Because again, it's like such a fascinating thing for, a, who knows the paths that life takes you down. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to how filmmaking kind of builds into this base of your life. And hello to your kid, kitten in the back. Who is that little yeah, cat he, creature? His name is Jack. He, he uh, yes. in all my conversations. A strong cat name. <laughs> yes. That cat's awesome. Oh I, can, I can just tell from hearing through, the, through my headphones. That, that cat's cat, awesome. That cat's cool as hell. <laughs> so you were in Los Angeles. You had this day job. But did yeah. you specifically move to Los Angeles to make movies, or was it just a place that you just kind of? I mean, why does anybody else move to Los Angeles? I don't know any of the other reasons there. Well, I actually moved to Los Angeles uh, in order to uh, pursue acting, mm-hmm. um, and I pursued acting for the first several years I was in Los Angeles. Then what happened was, as as time went on, the acting thing. I mean, I I did really well my first year uh, in Los Angeles as an actor. Um, did Bernie Mac show, did Men's Fitness magazine, okay. you know, did all kinds of cool stuff like that. Um, and then things started to kind of dry up 
And so I, I still had a creative hunger. So I started channeling in other areas by studying screenwriting and in producing and directing and things like that and started working with several people, um, along those lines. And then, you know, as, uh, acting never really took off. I mean, I did, I did relatively well in comparison to some folks, um, not as well as others. Um, but the screenwriting thing, it turns out I was much better at screenwriting than I was at acting. And I, I liked it more because I was able to literally create my own story. So that's kind of how that whole thing birthed. Uh, so, how, so when you're writing, I mean, how much of it you, with the, the formal sort of acting experience that you've had, do you, I mean, that's obviously sort of been a strength that you can incorporate into the different scripts and screenplays that you've written, right? It, it, yes. Yeah, well, actually, um, in contrary to popular belief, I actually learned more about acting, studying screenwriting than I ever did in acting class. And it was interesting because um, when I studied when I studied screenwriting, I studied through uh, Robert McKee's story program, and he teaches fundamental basics, uh, built the building blocks of creating and structuring story. And um, as I began to learn how to structure a story, I was like, um, you know, things things like beats and in subtext. Though you see it, like when you're when you're watching your favorite actor, I mean that's all they're really doing. But you don't really necessarily pick up on that. Most actors, when they read a scene, they read it necessarily for what's on what's in the text. They don't look for what might be you know happening underneath the text. And uh, when I was when I studied that, I was like, that blew my mind because I was like, if they had told me this, I would have been a better actor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're able to kind of work your way through performance in general by building your own stories out of that kind of stuff what kind of things did you want to tell at that point when you started writing well actually um i i've always been a a horror fan and so i had a lot of different horror uh stories that i wanted that i wanted to tell but my problem was i i was really leery of the cliche of modern storytelling which is where you know like every zombie film is exactly the same as the last zombie film it's just with different people and you know different girls and boys and every vampire film they cover like this color by numbers layout kind of thing and i i didn't want to write stories like that i wanted the stories to be of the genre but like like redefining a genre i wrote a zombie film that instead of being about humans trying to run away from zombies it was a zombie world where um you know everyone was a zombie and they lived lives as a zombie and they had jobs and they had families and whatever <laughs> and this human child goes to the zombie school and is bullied for being human. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, sure. And then they have like laws where, you know, society is allowed to consume children who turn human. So it became like a social drama. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was kind of like this, you know, I, I like to twist it around and, you know, make it make people think about it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the fun things about writing, like genre writing, right? You can incorporate, I mean, different... Anything you want, really. Contemporary or social, yeah, all sorts of like different like little metaphor life sort of things. It, it, it's, sci-fi definitely sort of gears itself toward that, and I would think that you can... The different forms of stories you can tell with horror are, are open themselves up to that, too. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's one of my favorite things about the Babadook, is that it's a story about grief. It's a story about is it really? harnessing grief and using it to overcome actual pain in your life, yeah. I've never seen it. Amazing. I, so, yeah, the, the, go ahead, Roger. No, I was just going to say that the, the master thing about horror, the horror genre in general is that it, it's uh, tailored for, um, for facing your fears as a human being. So whenever you see a horror film, if it's done well, you're, you, what, you're scared because human beings have a fundamental fear of something that is being brought out, whether it's a fear of monsters or it's a fear of home invasion or it's a fear, you know, like, anything like that, but it, it caused you to confront that stuff. And so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in a situation where I was able to present 
a different view, something people hadn't seen before, but still asking the same hard questions. You know, Roger, I'm going to, you tell me what you want in in relation to this question, but you did bring up your late wife recently um, and her passing. And I'm just curious because, of course, there's a million hard questions that come out of somebody a person loves passing away. And I wonder if this has factored into your writing that you do since, um, is this been exploring with the horror or the genre um, of writing? You know what? I, I haven't written any new material since then. Um, I've, I, you know, I, I've actually just kind of got back into filmmaking. Um, but most of the stories that I have, uh, in that I've been writing or that I'm in the process of writing were, were ideas that came to me long before that happened. But at the same time, I do plan to incorporate the, you know, the, the things that I experienced and the pain and the recovery and the life lessons that I learned from, from, from all that. Cause my, my perspective on life is so much different now than it was then. Yeah. Um, in, and in, so, you know, that's, that, that's like a, that's an important element that I plan to incorporate into my writing. Yeah, how could you not? I'll be really excited to see what we get out of your writing from that, too. Just because, you know, I really do believe that artists and writers really put into their work what they're going through in their real life. And since this is such a recent development, thank you for any bit of it that you end up sharing with the world. Now, on the note of the genre, you know, you talk about how you've been writing things about um, spoopy things for a long time. And, (laughs) you know, that, that leads us straight into lycanthrope and kind of where we are with that. So, Jack, you want to lay it out for all of our listeners? Well, yeah. So it's it's a it's a high school uh, drama about uh, a werewolf. Well, there's some sort of monster that's been killing kids recently. Yes. Nobody really knows what it is, and uh, everything sort of comes to a head in the the selection of the script. And just, I'm sort of curious, Roger. This seems like it's, and I think even as far as the title goes, on a formal formally yeah, speaking, it talks about title. talks about volumes and stuff. So this clearly is part of a larger story, right? Yeah, it is. It uh, this is sort of a all of my short stories that I wrote for the horror genre were designed, number one, to be uh, possible anthology pieces are designed to be feature length. Ooh, okay. I, okay, gosh, again, so many questions. So what we have are standalones that could be expanded. Mm-hmm. So basically ideas yeah. that you love that live with you, but also just the technicality of understanding what you want long game when you write. Do you kind of think about when you build a new piece in terms of what you could potentially get out of it in the long run, or do you just kind of write these things from your heart as they come to you? Well, actually like this short, like the lycanthrope is um, the broad strokes were already kind of laid out. Um, I, and again, this, this piece was another piece where it's almost like a more of a human story than it necessarily is a monster movie. But um, it, in terms of the, like the protagonist and, and his arc, um, the short was written as sort of a microcosm of the larger piece of, of this coming of age story for this particular teenager and, um, Brayden, correct? Yeah. For Brayden. Exactly. Um, and again, so, you know, once you've gone through and, and kind of see where he is at in his head in, in the story, it, you know, the whole thing becomes, you know, every teenager probably goes through this same, through this same, you know, uh, dilemma or a series of dilemmas, you know, on what to do and how to, you know, cope with, you know, with who you are and what you want and, and dealing with the, the ramifications and the consequences that come from your choices. 
That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about as far as setting this like specifically in a high school. And I've always sort of been a sucker for stories that are centered around teenagers and the idea that you're just, you know, you're this person that's starting to really come into their own. And you've got all these different chemicals in your body that are going nuts and like everything is really amped up in terms of the emotional stakes where every little thing, you know, in real life, you know, getting studying for a test or asking somebody out like the stakes are just so high because you're really becoming this adult that you're first starting to turn into. To, and then taking that and applying it as a metaphor with like involving monsters or aliens or whatever. Like, I think those two things sort of fit really well together. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, of course the first rule of story is you have to be able to, um, your audience has to be able to identify with your protagonist in, in an empathetic manner. So it, you know, whether the, whether the protagonist happens to be a good guy or a bad guy, about them that you know people can relate to and can you know understand his his or her dilemma um and want them to you know work that out and i think with the 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 short actually kind of sets that up for Braden. um the the feature length is going to be of course go into much more detail and and backstory into you know how he got to be where he is today and where he goes from here but um yeah it's it's definitely those are the dynamics that we're shooting for so you have basically the long form story. How and, and you may have just answered this a little bit, but how did you choose this particular moment? This this oh my gosh, kids are disappearing. The dumb sheriff is asking, is there any animals running wild? <laughs> yeah. You know, teenage guy stumbling into a potentially illicit situation that really escalates quickly that reveals his own struggle. How how did you distill your long story down into this moment for the short? Well, as a as a um, potential um, almost like proof of concept piece, um, not necessarily an extended trailer as much as just a short film. Um, I wanted to make sure that we covered some of the some of the finer points that make the story what it is. In this in this particular case, it was frame of mind. Um, because the big reveal in the short film, you know, it, it gives you some insight into his, in, into how he views the world, um, and what is important to him as opposed to the forces of antagonism around him that want to change him or make him into something that he doesn't want to be. And this can be applied generally throughout various groups in society. Um, when you're, you know, like in the LGBT community, when you're, you know, you have the expectation that you're going to be one way, but you you're not that way. So you have to be true to yourself. Um, but there are consequences that go with that. You know what I mean? So brain's brain's jury is much the same in terms of the things he's got to go through. Actually, it makes his character empathetic, um, as well as as compelling because people are like, what is he going to do? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So in this lycanthrope script, we've got Braden, who's been uh, hanging out with some classmates, talking about these, you know, this these sort of series of murders involving kids. These go their separate ways, and Braden is sticking around school. He's involved, I think, like in the football team, and he's he works out for a little bit in the gym, and then he's sort of wandering the halls, and he keeps hearing. There is a part where this one female teacher, uh, you're not sure if maybe he's like hallucinating or having a vision, but he sort of sees her in this almost like Porky's moment of seeing somebody disrobe. And he's just sort of running around school, hearing noises and freaking out, and then walks into a room and sees Mr. Carter, another teacher, and Mrs. Fisher in the throes of uh, having a a romantic moment, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hubba hubba and uh and then mr fisher who's also a teacher at school shows up and that's sort of where we pick up from is that a pretty good summary to get us yeah to this for point, our Roger? reading today listeners 
Yes, absolutely. Okay, so listeners, if you're following along, we're going to be starting at the bottom of page six with some action headings read by myself. Um, we have a special treat today as Roger will be reading for Mr. Fisher and Jack will be playing the teenage heartthrob, Brayden. Yeah, I'm Brayden. What's up, man? <laughs> hey. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you're just... This hey. Is, oh, stop. What's up? <laughs> hey. Keep doing that thing where you like take your, your long hair that's not that long and make sure it's going behind your ear. Your lovely little short my red little hair locks, with your yeah. tiny little curls. Hey. You have nice red hair, by the way. Hey. Okay. Uh, Roger, you feeling good? Yes. Okay, Jack, you awesome. feeling good? I feel, I feel pretty cool. Yeah, let's just do this. <laughs> Great. So here we go. Brayden backs slowly toward the door. Mr. Carter's and Mrs. Fisher's eyes bulge. Mr. Fisher swings a claw. Mrs. Fisher screams briefly and abruptly stops. Flesh, tears, blood spatters on the floor and walls. Brayden peeks around the corner of the door. Mr. Carter attempts to gather his entrails as his face softens on the floor. He lays his head on Mrs. Fisher's bloody abdomen. Her throat, ripped open, slowly flows blood which pools beneath her chin. Mr. Fisher turns his head toward Brayden and smiles. Brayden races down the hall. Mr. Fisher follows. Brayden enters the gymnasium. Mr. Fisher, please! Mr. Fisher growls. He paces toward Brayden. Mr. Fisher jumps at Brayden and tackles him. They wrestle. Brayden turns into a wolf and throws Mr. Fisher off of him. Mr. Fisher stands and stares at Brayden. You're a lycanthrope. That's not possible. You were bitten. Mr. Fisher studies Brayden. It was an accident. Mary just got mad. She didn't mean it. Mary made me this way? You're not a killer. You don't have to do this. A low growl. Mm. Mr. Fisher inches toward Brayden. I killed those kids. Because of you. Mr. Fisher growls. You can control it. Mr. Fisher rushes Brayden. Brayden meets him head on. Mr. Fisher tosses Brayden against the wall. Brayden attacks Mr. Fisher. They scratch each other. Mr. Fisher decks Brayden. Brayden hits the deck and springs back up. They square off. Mr. Fisher leaps onto Brayden and snaps his jaw at Brayden's neck. Brayden tosses him off. Mr. Fisher swings at Brayden. Brayden dodges him. Brayden slashes Mr. Fisher's back. Mr. Fisher howls. Mr. Fisher grabs Brayden by the neck and lifts him up off the ground. Please. Mr. Fisher drops Brayden suddenly and stands in shock. Brayden looks at Mr. Fisher. Blood trickles from Mr. Fisher's mouth. Mr. Fisher drops to his knees and collapses with his heart in her hand. Brayden's eyes widen. He returns to human form. And scene. So that's the big twist, revealing that Mary has been the one that's infecting these people, right? The little sister. Yeah. It's sort of it's sort of actually a double whammy, number one, uh, that, of course, Mr. Fisher has been the killer, but at at Mary's at Mary's uh, hand, which Braden um, was, has been trying to hide because he's trying to protect his sister. Yeah, and, and the, the sort of the reveal that Braden's sort of in this mix and he's fighting these urges, is, I mean, that's sort of the yeah. whole thrust between the fight that he's having with Mr. Fisher. Yeah, see, what this scene reveals in Braden is his empathy towards humanity, which, uh, again, so from just from the coming of age story, you know, he's a werewolf and he's, you know, he's he he doesn't want to kill. And he so he's been resisting that. But um, the forces around him, his family, you know, his sister, you know, they have no problem with it. You know, she bit Mr. Fisher and he, he says that she was mad, but she wasn't. She just 
she's just a bitch. And she just, you know, went off. She's a werewolf. Yeah. What do you expect? Well, so so that's that's interesting, though, because you talk about the idea of, you know, accepting who you are and, you know, the 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 consequences, the pros and cons that come with such a thing. And in Braden's case, you know, so he is this werewolf creature. And that would mean that naturally he would want to go out at night with the sun, with the moon out and like kill fighting against that. Uh, That's an interesting sort of uh, struggle that he's that you've written into him internally. Yes. And and, uh, that's kind of like the. the impetus of the story is Braden's struggle with his own um, self-image, but also the image that is expected of him by those around him. Because later on in the screenplay, you sort of you, you sort of get a glimpse of what is expected him, of him going forward, and it's basically the opposite of what he wants. What would be the rules for growing up into a respectable adult werewolf in this world? Mm. You know, are there parents werewolves? Is there like a, you will go to college, you will find a nice woman and settle down expectation for werewolves? Well, you definitely have to learn how to be potty trained. I mean, you have to learn how to go on the paper and stuff. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's that. Um, You also would have, of course, the dynamics of, uh, you know, um, needing to understand how uh, werewolf, you know, wolf clans as a a whole work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and in your world, do you kind of go with the standard mythology on werewolves, or do, have you adapted it and adjusted it and changed it to fit your own? Uh, a little of both, actually, because um, as we find out later, Braden is a part of a rather powerful wolf clan, and they have plans for him um, that he does not want to be a part of. And um, what's ironic is his sister, written to be a much more timid character, um, is a bloodthirsty animal, you know, yeah. so he's, he's this big hunky kid, which you'd expect him to be, you know, all that and go all out, you know, with, with the ego that goes with it. But instead, you know, he's skewing, Mary's showing up, as, ripping people's hearts out. Yeah, exactly. So how does the story sort of build from here? It, it sort of ends on a, on a cliffhanger with him and Mary arguing with each other and her telling him to, to really get her stuff together. And then also their other friend shows up and she's encouraging Braden to kill their other friend to tie up the next loose end. Yeah. Where, where does, where does, so things build from in this, there's this clan and they have plans and Mary would maybe be more predisposed to being the go-to person, but they want Braden. Is that, and that, and that sets up the conflict for the rest of the story? Well, as it turns out, the person who shows up at the end happens to be Braden's human girlfriend. Right. And so that the, his first conflict with this is, uh, and that's this was kind of a setup that his sister Mary did for him in order to, you know, kind of get him to snap out of his, you know, being a wuss when it comes to the humans, um, by making mm. her see exactly what he is, and you know, because she just thinks he's a kid, the the girlfriend, and so when she stumbles upon this scene, which is set up by Mary, you know, he's now Brayden has a choice because obviously. Um, he can't keep a secret from can't keep his you know his being a wolf a secret from his girlfriend anymore. So he has a, two choices, and that's you know uh, to kill her or make her a werewolf. Um, and so there's that's the first like huge dilemma that Braden faces. And then um, from that um, he he's kind of forced to grow up real fast, and mm-hmm. um, and it becomes uh, you know like as the story progresses there there are some other conflicts between Mary. Um, because he does turn the girlfriend um, because he doesn't want to lose her. And she, you know, and she, she, he gives her the choice, actually. He gives her the choice of whether or not to, you know, to, to turn, you know, understanding that the alternative is death. Um, but then that creates some sort of a power struggle down the road between the girlfriend and the sister. Okay, I have a question for you. Of course, in recent pop culture, lots of like horror things have become super popular. Oh, sure. And- this is werewolves and not vampires, but it does 
feel a lot like how some of Twilight plays itself out. Wonder how current pop culture affects the work. And if you kind of dive into that stuff or just really shy away from it and let your own mind take over the worlds that you create. I do, I do not, uh, as a general rule, um, follow. Matter of fact, if I, if I know something exists in pop culture, I usually try to formulate my writing differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it, as it happens, I've never actually seen any of the Twilight films. So if any, that's totally a coincidence, um, matter of fact, if, if that isn't there, I probably need to change mine a little bit in order to not make it seem as if, uh, it's the type of premise. Well, I mean, you of I, course would have to check it out to see yeah, what you're you, not lifting directly. You no, know, but the, the main point is, is that if any of it is, then you should be cap of the massive millions of dollars <laughs> yeah. available to you outside of your notary job. Right. That's exactly what I was going for. So this is labeled volume two, and I think you sort of described these as an anthology. So I'm curious about, was volume one a different kind of horror story? Actually, so, well, this was a part of, uh, actually, this was going to be a part of an anthology film that we were going to make, a feature involving uh, four different short films from four separate genres. Um but as it turns out, we that that idea has been kind of tabled for now in in lieu of making Lycanthrope itself into a feature. Um, we created a volume one um, horror anthology again using four different short films from four separate horror genres um, that is actually released on Amazon. Mm. Um, yeah, so um, in that one there was a. There was a demonic child story. There was um, the, the Jones, which was that zombie story I was telling you about earlier. What mm-hmm. there was a verse zombie. Um, there was a, a, a vampire story in there, um, and then there was a monster in the closet story. Okay, and are they so all kept? All... They, are they all kept discreet from one another, or is there sort of a coming together by the end? Well, what happens is the the wraparound story is this little girl's going to therapy and her and she tells the therapist about her bad dreams and the bad dreams end up being these short stories. Mm-hmm. And then That's then we advice. find out a big reveal at the end about who the little girl actually is and you know the relationship that she has with uh, with the therapist and we kind of tie uh, all the films together um, in the backstory that way. So the we before was you and your wife. Is there a different we in this partner of making the lycanthrope into a feature film and kind of making the choices about the anthology versus um, the full-length films? Yeah, as it turns out, um, my manager is also my producing partner. Her name is Wendy Krauss, and she and I are basically joining forces with our two companies uh, to produce these uh, features. We're actually not starting Lycanthrope yet. We're working on two other features. Uh, one of them, is, uh, as fate would have it, a zombie film that um, I wrote several years ago and then reverse adapted into a book that's also on Amazon uh, called The Zombie Effect. And then um, uh, Jack the Ripper Tale, modern Jack the Ripper Tale that I wrote, again, several years ago that that's been sitting waiting to be made forever. Um, so yeah, that, so that's, uh, we kind of changed. That's why we took Lycanthrope, uh, and the anthology idea kind of out of the picture at the moment. So we could dive into the, to the ready-made feature scripts that we already have on mm-hmm. the slot. The slate. How fun is it for you to try to come out? I mean, you're writing all these different horror things, which generally usually involve a certain level of violence. I'm curious about how much fun it is for you to come up with different creative ways of, you know, killing people and monsters fighting and that sort of thing. You know, it's a funny thing you should say that because when I was doing um, when I was reverse adapting the zombie effect for for the novel, 
the screenplay is a much different animal than a novel because the novel you have to go in and basically you know spoon feed everyone exactly everything that's happening exactly what people are feeling and exactly you know what everything tastes like you know Mm -hmm. and so as i was going through and creating these scenes i was like i I would think up another scene that um you know like there's a scene where this character appears and he's a zombie and i'm like well what if i you know introduce a scene to the book that shows how he became a zombie and then I was like, cool. So then I'm like, so what's the worst thing I could do to this person, like to make to make their death like the most you know horrendous experience imaginable? And so I, I literally would sit and just think of like, what's the worst thing oh, I could God. do to this girl? Yeah, you know. Do you know this actually reminds me of the interview with Michael Daly and Fame Fatale. Fame Fatale. Oh, yeah, he was. We, we, yep, we had a, a writer, a screenwriter, and you should definitely check out his interview, Roger, where this uh, main character goes to a, a horror. Con, yeah, convention, yeah, a convention, and then uh, the writer took like a real life event that happened to him, and in his screenplay, he changed the end where he just got to brutally take off <laughs> these these characters <laughs> there, just, and he did the same thing. Yeah. Just thinking about how can I, what is the best, most fun way that I could really wrap this situation up right now in the screenplay. Yeah, he just starts massacring these people all in like different and increasingly more violent and creative ways and yes. that, that was sort of that was sort of an, that that made me think of that when I was reading your thing. And and then you talking about all these different monster things that you're doing and, and various horror writings that you have. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of crazy when I wrote the ritual, um that's a Jack modern Jack the Ripper tale, but I actually I took uh, research that I did on the original Ripper cases, and I kind of incorporated the whole thing into the actual plot line uh, for the film. But, you know, like when I created like the the fifth canonical killing, if you read up on how, I mean, on the crime scene information, I mean, that's like is if you put a stick of dynamite inside someone and let it go off. Oh, jeez. You know, so the, this whole scene is set up by, you know, you walk into this room and it's like it's like a violent scene from seven or something. You know, you're, it's like, whoa, how do, you know, you can't even tell it's a human being anymore because, you know, they're everywhere. But and that's in the police report. Well, in, in the if, so if you read up on the the five canonical killings from Jack the Ripper, the fifth one basically, you know, has this person literally mutilated. They're just, you know, everywhere. Yikes. And so that's what we, that's what I created a, you know, I created a scene where this detective finds this character and she's, uh, she finds this character, but the, the, the victim is everywhere on the walls, the ceiling. Gross. Yeah. Gross. For those of you who skipped the Halloween show and are tuning in now, bad luck jerks. Here we are again. (laughs) Yuck. Uh, Well, let's, you know, it sounds like you've got a lot of stuff rolling and really going on for this. You've got the two features, you've got this one backed up. You know, what How? What if somebody wants to work with you in Texas or in ULIS or, you know, any, nationally, internationally, anybody get in touch and talk to you about your work? The uh, best way to do that would be to contact my manager, Wendy Krause, um, at Elemental Talent. Is, that's actually her, her her email is elementaltalent at gmail.com. Okay. Um, and, yeah, she, she will uh, she'll, she'll let me know. Okay, great. Yeah. Roger, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show and bringing all these right back them. into my head. It was <laughs> my pleasure. Thanks, man, very much. All right, well, there's Roger. I Okay, In the la- since we started the show and since we started Independent, my uh-huh. threshold yes. for spoopy stuff yeah. has gone up. It has to have, right? It you, has to have. Yeah. Because I have to expose myself more and more to more. And again, good storytelling is good storytelling. It right. doesn't matter the wrapping that you put on it. So... Thank you. That's exactly putting it. It really is true, though. A good story will stand up, especially like talking with Roger about these very universal moments, using the genre as a metaphor to deal with your own, you know, demons, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, if you've had something that involved gore and you have defense mechanisms when it comes to laughing at it or freaking out about it and hiding under your pillow or under your under your bed, that you have a lot of options there. If you've written something like that in script form, you can do that by going on to scriptshopshow.com slash submit or checking us out on, we're back on Film Freeway. Yeah, pedal to the metal Film Freeway. Perfect. Yeah. So uh, check us out online. You can check that all out, but you can also go to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on Twitter, I am at your bestie Westie. And I'm at Script Shop Jack. And don't forget to tune into all episodes we have. Connect with our artists, our writers, read their screenplays. And until next week, friends, that's a wrap. Script Shop was created by Allison West. Hosted by Allison West and Jack Crumley. Produced by Frank Steele. Thanks to iHeartMedia Cincinnati for use of their studio. Intro music, Retro Soul by bensound.com. Outro music by purple-planet.com. Special thanks to all our guests. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.